0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to Second Peter chapter one. We will begin reading from verse twelve down to fifteen. Second Peter one verses twelve to fifteen. In the Pew Bible, that's ten eighteen, page ten eighteen. Verse twelve. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as the Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. May the Lord bless the reading of his word.
1: Well, let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks and praise for this opportunity to sit before your word. Lord, how we pray that you would teach us about the brevity of life this morning. And I pray that you would drive within us a deep passion to invest our lives well in light of the shortness, the the breath, the vapor of this life. And that we would take that seriously for the sake of your name and for the glory of your triune presence among us. We bless and honor you today. In Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder uh, if you know who said the following words. Fans, for the past two weeks, you've been reading about the bad break I got. Yet today, I consider myself to be the luckiest man on the face of this earth. Do you know who that was? That was Lou Gehrig, yep. July 4th, 1939, after he was diagnosed with ALS. Or how about these words? Without the assistance of God who ever attended me, I cannot succeed. But with that assistance, I cannot fail. To his care, commending you, as I hope in your prayers you will commend me, I bid you an affectionate farewell. Well, that was Abraham Lincoln in February 11th, 1861 in his farewell address. Well, suppose that you're at the end of your life and you know it. What would be your final words? What would you want to tell others if you knew that you only had months to live? What would you say to your family or what would you say to this church if you knew this was it? This is your last speech. Because that's exactly what we find Peter doing here. He's at the beginning of his farewell address. Peter is probably somewhere between 60 to 70 years old. And he's likely writing from prison. What we know from history is that on July 18th in 64 AD, there was a great fire that burned For a week in the city of Rome. And 70% of the buildings in Rome were destroyed, incinerated by that fire. And looking for a scapegoat, the emperor then, Nero, blamed the Christians. And many Christians were persecuted, were killed, were arrested. And uh, it seems from history that Peter was also one of those who was arrested after the fire. And only three months after this arrest, Peter was executed by Nero. So when Peter says in verse 14 here, when he says, I will soon lay aside my tent, my body, it could be that Peter is already aware of his looming death. Perhaps the execution had already been set for Peter. And you know, as I was studying this week, this really hit close to home for me because I started to think about the fact that while Peter is writing this, literally he could be months if not weeks away from his execution and he knows that. And so every word that he writes is highly calculated. He's not wasting space or time. He's, in, he's writing very particular things to us. And that means that these are literally some of the very last words of Peter's life. Biblical scholars, all of them refer to this as Peter's farewell address. Um, because even though this is kind of the preface, verses 12 through 15 of his farewell, the rest of the book now is going to be his farewell where he's going to leave us with the most important things that he wants us to consider. So this is heavy stuff because we're talking about Peter's words right before his martyrdom. Now, can you imagine your friend or your pastor or, or a friend, a teacher, or a missionary hero of yours stretching out his hands to carry his own cross to a place of execution Can you imagine hearing the story of how Peter asked Roman officials to crucify him upside down because he did not consider it worthy to be crucified the same way Jesus Christ was? Can you imagine all of that and then waiting with bated breath to hear this letter read in the church? Can you imagine reading these last words from Peter knowing that he's gone? He's just been martyred for his faith. Wouldn't you want to hear what he had to say? Because the reality is that's exactly what's on your lap this morning. Peter's words live on. I, I, I love that. Centuries later, we're still digesting these words. And, and the reality is they're just as relevant today as they were then. So what does Peter have to tell us? Well, let me summarize quickly what he said so far. Look at the text there in front of you. Chapter 1, verse 3. Peter says, God's divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us by his glory and goodness. What an amazing promise verse 3 is. Really what Peter is saying is that Christ is with you by the spirit. You have been delivered from the grip of evil. Sin is not your sin is your enemy. It is not your master. And he says for this very reason verse 5 We should make every effort to add to our faith, goodness, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. In this way, Peter says, your Christian life, verse 8, will be fruitful and productive, which is what we all want in this room. And more than that, verse 11, on the last day, you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, Now, that's the message of the book, and it's all about the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, not only for faith, but really for all of life. Now, today, what Peter does is he's going to teach us about this role of reminder in the life of a Christian. How is it that being reminded of the truth works to wake us up or to stir us up, as some translations say? How is it that being reminded being receiving reminders teaches us about the brevity of life or helps us grow in godliness. Another way to say it is, what's the relationship between persevering in the Christian life and reminders? Peter explains all of that. And what we see are three things. Number one, we see the necessity of reminder that we are forgetful people. Number two, we see the purpose of reminder that reminders are designed to stir us up. And three, we see the urgency of reminders that life is short and what we leave behind really matters. So first, let's look at the necessity of reminder, the fact that we are forgetful people. Notice the emphasis here in this whole passage, 12 through 15, on reminding, this issue of reminding. Peter mentions it three times. In verse 12, he says, I will always remind you about these things, even though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. He repeats it again in verse 13. I think it is right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. And then... Just in case we haven't already got the point, verse 15 says, and I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. So it's clearly a focus of Peter. Now to be clear, when when Peter uses the phrase these things in verse 12 and 15, he's referring to everything he's already said, right? Everything all the way up to verse 12. That means he's reminding us of the gospel in verses 3 and 4. He's reminding us of the qualities and characteristics that are to mark our lives in verses 5 through 8. And he's reminding us of everything that we need to persevere so that we will find entry into God's kingdom in verses 8 through 11. And I, and I also think, actually, Peter has in mind the rest of what he's going to write in the book. Because he's, these are his last words. And when he says these things, I want to remind you of these things. He's obviously going to include everything that he's going to write after that as well. Now, if you're like me, when you read this stuff about reminders, I mean, it just seems so anticlimactic. I mean, this seems kind of like an unexciting passage of scripture. Okay, well, I want you to be reminded of a certain set of things, and just in case you didn't hear that, I want you to be reminded, and I'm going to make every effort to remind you. Well, what do you do with that? I mean, thank you, Peter, but this seems so anticlimactic and unexciting. I mean, Doesn't it get old when you're constantly reminded of things that you already know? He says that in verse 12. I'm reminding you of things you already know. It seems odd to me. Peter's saying my life's goal is to keep on reminding you of the same things you already know. He's saying my whole ministry is built on bringing you back to something old. He's saying this ministry of mine is centered around... Reminding you of stuff you think and are sure you already know, isn't that just a formula for frustration? You suppose you get in your car, to use an illustration, and every time you do, there's some backseat driver saying, "Don't forget to buckle up. Don't forget to indicate. There's a stop sign. Slow down. Watch that truck. Go ahead and brake." And every time you get in the car, you hear that. And eventually, when this goes on for a while, you're going to stop your car. You're going to pull it off on the side of the road. And you're going to say, will you stop telling me things that I already know? That, it's annoying. It's a nuisance to us. And I think that why does Peter do this? I think the answer is, is quite simple. It's because we are forgetful people. The point of verse 12 is that even established and mature Christians need constant reminders. How easily do we forget things in this life? Think about the matter of making vows and pledges. How many of us have made promises and said, from this day forward, I am determined to live in such a way and manner. But then How easily do we forget that promise? We make a strong effort up front, but then within weeks or months, that begins to fade. And it's as if we've totally forgotten it at all after several months. We are forgetful people, we're called to remember. But the question is what does it mean to remember biblically? That's the issue. Because in the Bible, remembering means far more than just being able to recall that something happened. Remembering in the Bible is when something happened becomes real and fresh and alive to your soul. That's the point of remembering. And here's why this matters so much. When you read the Bible, one of the things you see so clearly is that our sin, our disobedience... To God is so often the result of our forgetfulness. Isn't that true? We tend to forget the very things that we so desperately want to remember. And so we see very clearly the necessity of reminder. But notice, secondly, the purpose of reminder, which is growth and protection. How, how do reminders help us grow? Well, first of all, they stir us up or as some translations say, they wake us up. Verse 13, Peter says, I think it is right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. It reminds me of Hebrews chapter ten, twenty four and 25, where it says, let us exhort one another, let us stir one another up towards love and good deeds. This idea of being stirred up. And we don't often think about reminders as being good ways to stir us up. In fact, What tends to stir us up, most of us, is when things are new, when they're fresh, when they're innovative. But Peter here, think about this, says just the opposite. He says that actually old things are meant to stir you up. Things that are not new and novel, things that are tried and true, things that are old. That's what's supposed to be stirring you up. And you know, a good good illustration of this in my life is four years ago, I really felt the need and the desire to saturate myself in the gospel. And so I, I found an essay entitled The Centrality of the Gospel, which was written by Tim Keller. And I sat down and I thought I would go through this and just remind myself of the truths of the gospel. I had no idea what I was getting myself into because weeks later, I was blown away. By the truths of the gospel all over again. Not because Keller was saying anything new, but because Keller was saying something really old. And it was rejuvenating to my soul. I, I was reading this, and just page after page is highlighted. And you read it, you're saying, There's nothing novel about this. But what was so amazing was the truths of the gospel were beginning to grip my soul again. I was rediscovering. The truth. Frankly, I felt like I was being saved all over again. I remember sitting in Starbucks and and just just being in my own world, just forgetting about everybody that's around me, and being so enamored with the gospel. And and we need this. This is important for us as a church. I want you, I want you to just think about this. When we come here on Sunday mornings, we are so weighed down by our sin. Are we not? You come here and you realize, you know, the sin that you've been facing all week and we're, we're wounded. And as a body, as a church, we are tired, especially right now as a church family. And we need to remember the gospel each week. We need to remind ourselves of it. And then we need to speak it to each other. Folks, this is also why we are committed as a church to expositional preaching, where the point of the sermon is the point of the text It's why we value preachers here whose sermons are marked not by novelty, but by faithfulness. We're not looking for clever phrasing. We're looking for faithful recounting of God's word. And let us never think that well-informed Christians, that you people who are well-informed, let us never think that you don't need to continually be taught basic truths of the Bible. Because sometimes it's the 20th or 30th time through that we finally see something and are transformed by it. I'm reading right now for my time alone with the Lord this year, the same two books over and over and over for the first four months. I'm reading Nehemiah and 1 Timothy. And I've read Nehemiah about six or seven times, and I've read 1 Timothy 10 to 12 times. And I feel like I know those books really well because I'm reading them over and over and over. But you know, every time I go through it, I'm seeing new things. And so we need to constantly remind ourselves of the truth. As pastors, we're not called to stand up here on Sundays and dazzle you by hitting sermonic home runs week after week. We're not called to... to excite you, what we are called to do is speak the plain truth contained in God's word so that we can feed you week in and week out, line upon line, precept upon precept. We seek to deliver all of God's word to his people. You know, strong churches are built not because preachers are clever and cute or funny in the pulpit, but because they are faithful to teach God's word paragraph by paragraph and book by book year after year for the duration of their life. Now, let me get really specific here for a moment, because I know that as a church member, I have also been a church member at many churches, and I have sat under the ministry of good and faithful pastors. And I know that it can be hard to develop a taste for spiritual food that quietly nourishes your body rather than suddenly enticing your palate. But that's exactly what we need. We need a steady diet of the vitamins and nutrients of God's word so that we will become healthy Christians. And your pastors here at this church are committed to the health and soundness of this church which is why we're not jerked around by every new fad of church practice because we know that health and vitality of God's church comes from consistently being reminded of these great truths about Jesus Christ and how we should live in light of them. And that feels frankly, very safe. But of course, for you, sometimes that's gonna feel repetitious. But listen, just as meals in a family are made and prepared over and over again, just as clothes are washed and worn again, just as children are corrected time and again on the same points, just as God shows us his mercy over and over again, so we are to rehearse the gospel over and over again. And by doing so, we will grow and we will be stirred up. Reminders are meant to stir us and to grow us, but they're also designed to protect us. And we'll see this more clearly next week. Just look at verse 16. Just drop down there and look at verse 16 where Peter says something interesting. It shows us why reminders are important. He says, we did not follow cleverly, cleverly devised myths. What's the point of that? The point of that is, unless we're reminded of the truth, we're going to be prone to listen to false teachers. You know why? Because they're so clever. And you hear them talk and you think, oh, that's really persuasive. And you listen to it, and it's a new theology. It's something novel. And you're drawn in, and you say, ooh, this is good. I like this. Somebody's bringing something novel. When Greg Gilbert wrote his book, What is the Gospel? Somebody said uh, in a blog post, I'll never forget this. They said, Greg Gilbert says nothing new about the gospel. Don't buy the book. Well, I take that as a compliment. He shouldn't be saying anything new about the gospel, because the gospel is a tried and true Teaching. If you bring something novel to the gospel, you're distorting the message of the gospel. So verse 16, Peter is saying that the the point of this is to remind you is that this protects you. All right. So we've seen the necessity of reminder that we're forgetful people. We've seen the purpose of reminder to stir us up, to protect us, to help us grow. And now I want to spend the rest of our time on this point, the urgency of reminder Life is short and what you leave behind really matters. Peter is about to die. And we know this because of what he says in verse 14. Look at 14. He says, I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as the Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And then in verse 15, he talks about his departure or as the Greek text says, his exodus. So, Peter's about to leave. He's about to depart. He's about to die. And two things that stand out to me here. First, reminders are urgent because life is short. Peter says in verse 14, I will soon lay aside my tent. Now, depending on what translation you have in your lap there, your text may say body or bodily tent, but the word tent, (skenoma) is a metaphor that Peter uses to communicate something marvelous. I remember when I was in college spending... Eight days in a tent in Pennsylvania, a group of friends and I, we got into a canoe and we canoed down a river in Pennsylvania and we camped alongside the bank of the river each night. One night it stormed quite severely and we each of us had a one man tent, you know, these one man deals. And I was in this one man tent. We would set it up each night and it stormed. It was a great storm. Wind is whipping and blowing. And you know, I felt very insecure in that tent as you can well imagine. I'm sure Jeff Gatiller would really love that. But for me, you know, I, it, was a, it, was, it was very, very alarming to be in a little flimsy tent in the middle of a storm. And the point of Peter's metaphor here is that these earthly bodies, these tents that we are in, they're not meant to last. You're not meant to, to live in your tent forever. And that's, that's both comforting to us and it's sobering. It's, it's sobering because it means that our time here is short. Like your life in this tent is very, very temporary and transient. We, we have a limited opportunity to live and we must spend our lives well. But it's also comforting because this means that this decaying tent that you're in, that's not your home forever. This disease you have, this sickness you have, You're not going to have that forever. As a Christian, you're going to get a new body someday. You're going to have a new tent. And it's going to be perfect, and it's not going to be flimsy, and it's not going to be decayed. But either way, the point here that Peter is making is that life is short. And reflecting on that should encourage thoughtfulness in your actions. Don't miss opportunities, friends. Don't miss opportunities in this life because you think that you're always going to have a chance. How are you investing your life now is the question. What difference are you making now? Because this matters. What legacy will you leave behind? And see, this is the second thing that Peter is showing us, is that reminders are urgent because what we leave behind really matters. That's what Peter's doing. He's leaving a legacy. He's leaving something behind. And so Peter says in verse 15 that he's making every effort to leave them with something when he dies. He's leaving a legacy. What's he leaving them with? He's leaving them with this letter right here. This is his legacy. I'm leaving you with 2 Peter. That's what he's leaving behind. And he's making every effort to do that. This is his last will and testament. So let me ask you a question. Dads, dads in here, moms, husbands, wives, youth. What are you leaving behind? What, what, what will be your legacy when you're gone? Or as a pastor, what am I going to leave behind? As a church member, what will you leave behind? What will you leave with the next generation? That's an open question for all of us this morning. And that needs to be answered. And I hope that you dream and I pray that you dream about this question. What will God do through my life to make a lasting difference for Christ in this world? I mean a lasting transformative difference for Jesus in this world. Dream about that. Talk to your wife or husband about that. Your kids. If God told you today that your life is short, your time is short, what would you be devoting yourself to? Because listen, God is telling you today that life is short. So the question I have for you is what's your plan? What plan do you have on paper to invest your life fruitfully? Let me give you a few suggestions just to get started. Here are some practical suggestions for different types of people. It's not going to fit everybody's life, but I hope these will be a smattering. Number one, if you have flexibility, why don't you consider using your vacation time this year? to travel overseas and visit one of our missionaries that we support so that you can learn from them and pray with them and see what God is doing in their life and what he would do in your heart. Have you considered actually using up your vacation time to go overseas? Number two, have you considered starting a prayer meeting in your home with just a few friends that you are close to in this church and begin praying about specific people? Maybe it's your Small group, maybe it's just friends of yours in the church, but begin praying about specific people in this city and ways that you can advance God's kingdom in Owensboro. Number three, make it your heartfelt, listen to this one, make it your heartfelt and prayerful aim to lead one non-Christian to Christ in 2013. I'm serious, all the way to the point of baptism. This is your heartfelt prayer and your aim that you're not gonna be content until you see your friend stand right here in the waters of baptism. I'm excited about March the 3rd because we're gonna have a baptism service. And uh, there's been a guy that I've been working on and uh, for months now, and I'm so excited because he'll be baptized on March the 3rd. And you know, we need to strive Strive to see God at work in people's life. For you busy moms, here's what I want to say to you. Don't, Moms, don't feel guilty over making your children your primary ministry investment in these early years. Your availability, your sensitivity, your affection, your unhurried attention are irreplaceable. Does this mean that you'll never invest in others outside your family? No, it doesn't mean that. But If you're a young mother, then I want to urge you to stay on mission. That's your primary ministry of mothering. That's how you're serving Christ now. You serve God well by ministering to your children first. So mom, spend some time this week. And I want to encourage you to read Psalm chapter 78, especially verses 4 through 7. Psalm 78, 4 through 7. That'd be a great place for you mothers to spend some time. Rejoice in your calling uh, this week. Well, those are some quick ideas, but the point is life is short and you need to invest it well. And Peter knew that his time was fast approaching. I mean, you can just feel it in the text. Peter is, is sobered by this reality. In fact, Peter knew, even knew how he would die. Are you aware of that? Did you know Peter actually knew how he would die? In what manner? John chapter 21 clues us into this because Jesus tells Peter, do you remember this? In John 21, Jesus says this, verses 18 and 19, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, to Peter, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show Peter by what kind of death he was going to glorify god isn 't that sobering i don 't know if Peter understood all that then, but I know one thing, probably by the time he 's writing this letter he he well he understood it well so Peter is writing this, and, and what grips me about this encounter with Jesus. Is that what does Jesus end with in verse nineteen? After telling Peter that he would die as a martyr, Jesus says to him, "Hey, Peter, you're going to die as a martyr, and you're going to stretch out your hands." Then Jesus looks at him and says, "Follow me." That's that. That's unreal. That should clue you in to the importance of discipleship. Follow me. The heart of Christian discipleship is death to self. I read uh, Henry Martin's biography when I was on my way to India last fall. And in that biography, I pulled this line out. Henry Martin says this, listen to this. Great, great line. Henry Martin says, Lord, is a prayer. Let me have no will of my own or consider my true happiness as depending in the smallest degree on anything that comes to me outwardly, but as consisting altogether in conformity to your will. People don't talk like that anymore these days. We have lost that caliber of Christianity, by and large. But friends, that's biblical Christianity. We so quickly forget what it means to be a true disciple. So let me practice this sermon, this, this very sermon, and remind you of what Christian discipleship is supposed to look like. Let me give you several biblical characteristics of true discipleship. First, first, A true disciple has a supreme love for Jesus Christ. A supreme, supreme love for Jesus Christ. Luke 14, 26. Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, Jesus' point isn't that you should be having animosity in your heart toward your family or ill will. His point is that your love for Jesus should be so powerful and so supreme that it would make all other loves seem like hate. What a high standard for this is calling us to. Self-love is our problem. Self-love is so often the hindrance to true discipleship. Self-love. Just think about that. Self-love is what hinders us so much. Second, a true disciple is marked by a denial of self it logically flows. So Matthew 16:24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Friend, I, I it's important that we understand that to deny self is not the same thing as self-denial. You understand that, right? Self-denial is simply the the giving up of certain comforts, pleasures, food, preferences, possessions, mu- things But denial of self means so much more because denial of self is marked by a willingness to do whatever God wants whenever God says no questions asked. It's a wholesale denial of yourself. Third, true discipleship is a deliberate choosing of the cross. Grabbing the cross, choosing it. Matthew 16, 24, again, Jesus says, let him take up his cross and follow me. So the cross is a road. It's a, it's a pathway that is deliberately chosen. It symbolizes shame and persecution. And we make a deliberate decision to take up the cross and follow Jesus on his path of suffering. No matter how hard it gets, we stay on that path of suffering. Number four, true discipleship is a life spent in following Christ Because after we take up our cross, what does Jesus say? Follow me. Follow me. He's our guide and our instructor. He's our master. It's a lifestyle of obedience and surrender to his will. It's it's a life of unselfish service to others. It's spending ourselves for Christ and his church and this broken world around us. Oh, may God make us a church that is quick to serve. Let us serve each other in this body. Service should be our default mode. What can I do? How can I help? And, and you need to think, how can you take your gifts and your talents that God has given you and invest them right here in this church and in this broken world around us? A fifth mark of true discipleship is a fervent love for other Christians. <clears throat> this is clear in John 13 when Jesus says, by this, all will know that you're my disciples. By what? By how, how you love one another. See, this is the type of lover, love that esteems others better than yourself. It covers a multitude of sins. It's a love that suffers. It's a love that's patient. It's a love that's kind. It's a love that's not puffed up. It does not seek its own. It is not easily provoked. It thinks no evil. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. And it endures all things. 1 Corinthians 13, it's this kind of love. And that's what we should be striving for. I want you to think about the current affairs of our church and what we're going through as a church family. Let me ask you this question. What is your attitude and your posture in these days? Is it marked by these kind of qualities and this kind of love? And finally, I would say a sixth mark of true discipleship is an unswerving commitment to God's word. Jesus says in John 8 31, if you continue in my word, then you are really my disciples. Continue in that process. Real disciples don't just start well, they continue well and they finish well. And Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow, but then looks back again is fit for the kingdom of heaven. We are after a lifestyle of obedience to God and his words. Now, friends, this is a picture This is the kind of disciple that Peter himself was, and it's the kind of disciples he wants us to be by God's grace. And the gospel is what produces these types of Christians. People who forsake the lesser pursuit in favor of going after the greater pleasure, which is God himself. May God help us. Now, I just want to say this. Maybe you're here today as a non-Christian. Maybe you're here today as a skeptic as someone who you're an unbeliever, you're not sure that all this is true and you don't know if you believe in Jesus. The obvious truth is that Jesus certainly isn't precious to you. You're too busy accumulating things for yourself in hopes of finding happiness in this life. But let me just say, be really honest with you as a pastor. The truth that God's word teaches us is that you are under the law of God. I want you to think about this. You are born under the law of God. Okay, nobody nobody's sort of outside that and can kind of rule their own life. You're under the law of God, which means that you are legally guilty before God. You're guilty in the courtroom of God. And you know what the law says? The law of God says it demands two things. One, perfect obedience. And two, it demands the penalty that you pay the penalty if you disobey. So number one, you have to be perfect. And number two, if you're not perfect, guess who pays the penalty? You do. And that's what the law demands. To be guilty means to you're legally required to make a payment. If you're guilty, you pay. And everything that Jesus did on the cross, He did in reference to the law of God. So this is the bad news. You're guilty, you're under this, you're in the courtroom of God and you have to pay the penalty for that guilt. The good news is this, Galatians 4, 5, that God sent his son Jesus to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So here you are, you're under the law, God, it's weighing you down and you have to pay the penalty. But God says, I sent my son to redeem you from under that law And to make you sons. Incredible promise of the gospel. I don't understand why. Well, I do understand theologically. Because we are blind. But if you are hearing the voice of God this morning. Come. Come. Come to Jesus because in his presence is fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. If you will lay down your idols of money, title, success, recognition, and turn to Jesus, he will show you what true and lasting satisfaction is. Confess your sins this morning and turn to Jesus. If you want help doing that, we would love to talk to you as pastors after this service. So friends, this is Peter's farewell address. And he's urging us, okay? He's urging us, to take this whole matter of reminders seriously, okay? It's not boring and anticlimactic. It's crucial. Reminders are necessary because we're forgetful people. Reminders are purposeful because they stir us up. They help us grow and they protect us from error. And finally, reminders, as we've said, are urgent. They teach us that life is short and what we leave behind really matters. So in conclusion, let me ask you this. How are you doing? How are you doing with this whole issue of remembering? Because you remember in verse nine, as Pastor Mark preached last week, verse nine, what do we have? We have a forgetful person. That was the sobering thing about last week. And this just makes that point so well. Verse nine, we see a person who professed faith, but he had forgotten that he had been cleansed from his sins. Basically, verse nine, we have a guy who has forgotten the gospel. How sad is that? And last week, we saw how serious that was. But you know, I bet if you went up to that guy in verse nine and you came up to him on a Sunday morning and you said, you know what? I just want to tell you something. I want to tell you that Jesus died to pay for your sin and to make you right with God. I bet you that guy would say, I know that. I already know that. But see, the problem with this guy is not that he doesn't understand it intellectually. The problem with this guy is that he does not understand that the the point of God's forgiveness of his sins doesn't affect him anymore. That's the point. He's he's no longer being shaped by that. That reality is no longer shaping his life. It's no longer something for him that is real and fresh and alive and present because the guy has forgotten what it means to remember the death of Jesus. It's not shaping his life. So what? He made a profession of faith. That's great. But, and he knows all the facts of the gospel. And I'm sure that we all know all the facts of the gospel. But dear friends, here is the pressing question upon us this morning. Is it affecting your life? Is it transforming you? Do you have a sense of realness and a freshness? Is it alive to you and is it present because, you know, I think one of the reasons why we get stuck in the Christian life is that we persuade ourselves that we already know what in biblical terms we don't know well at all. When, the, when a girl says, I know that God loves me, but I really hate myself. I think if Peter were her pastor, he would put his arm on her shoulder and say, I know you say that you know that God loves you. You think you know that God loves you, but really you don't know that God loves you because right now, if you were savoring the love of God for you, you would not say that you hate yourself. Of course, the greatest example of remembering in the Bible is the Lord's Supper, which we will do tonight. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. He wants us to savor its blessing. He wants us to taste his goodness and reflect on the power that flows from his death and resurrection. Jesus wants his death and resurrection to be real and alive and fresh and present to us. There's a great illustration of this and it's uh, an old missionary to China. His name was Harry Wittenbeck. And he tells this story of a time when he remembered Christ while in prison in China. I love this. He says, it was Christmas day and there were three of us who were believers. We didn't have any wine and none of us were ordained priests, just Christians. Christians. We kept a few crusts of bread and we kept a little water in a cup. And on Christmas day, we remembered the Lord. And then, he, and then he says this, I have never known a communion service like it. The Lord was there. The Lord was there. Friends, that's the point. That's what it means to Remember. The Lord draw near to the savior and feed on all that he has accomplished for you. That's the purpose. Listen of your daily Bible reading. That's the purpose of your private prayer and communion with God. That's the purpose of your fellowship with other believers. That's the purpose of this church. That's the purpose of every sermon on Sunday morning and Sunday evening in this church and friends, that is the purpose of your life. May God come and help you to take this matter of remembrance seriously. Tonight, we have an opportunity to celebrate. And may we come with hearts full and rejoice. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. We do thank you for reminders. We need them. Help us, oh God, as we live this Christian life to live it with great intentionality, knowing that life is short. We plead with you, O God, to move upon us. And may these reminders not cause us to be bored, O God, but to be stirred, stirred to action and to invest our lives well for the sake of your name. We pray it all in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.